This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Ben Rhodes is the former marketing director at Royal Mail, where he led the digital transformation. He transformed marketing structures to reflect the shifting market landscape, integrated digital into marketing, establishing research, data, creative and social media in-house teams, introduced and developed talent by starting and leading commercial graduate programs, enhancing digital capability and motivating high-performing teams. He also led senior roles at McCann London and MasterCard and he recently was recognized as one of the top 100 marketers in the UK by Marketing Week. Ben Rhodes, welcome to Clientside. Oh, brilliant. I'm looking forward to it. Absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you very much. You've got a fascinating background. You start your career in the agency world. You worked at McCann, the biggest ad agency in the world. How do you go from there being an ad man to leading digital transformation for what is one of Britain's most beloved institutions, Royal Mail? Well, that's a really good question. And I like to say that, you know, it was completely planned. (laughs) But like most people, my career progression has been kind of squiggly, I think is the technical term for it. So (laughs) I I mean, I I never knew when I worked in, you know, in Adland, um, that 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 I would end up being, you know, marketing director or group marketing director of, of, you know, one of the top yeah, most recognized brands in, in the country. N- never had a clue. But I think, you know, what, what, what I did realize when I was at agencies was that there came a point in time where I just got more interested in the kind of overall marketing strategy than just the communication tactics, if that makes sense. Hmm. And when I saw an opportunity to, to go client side, my first role was at MasterCard. Um, it was really because I just wanted to kind of understand and contribute to the broader strategy and then execute that through advertising and, and marketing rather than just kind of giving a brief and execute that, if that makes sense. I want, uh, It was a sort of, uh, in one level, it was a curiosity to understand more about the business, but another level, it was about taking on more responsibility and driving change forward. And candidly, I also figured, when, you know, when I was, you know, I was a senior suitor at, at McCann, um, you know, I just... Uh, you know, I just didn't think my clients were doing as good a job as they could do. Mm. And and I had the kind of late 20s self-assurity that I could do a better job myself, or at least a good job. And I just wanted to stretch myself. So so that's what I did. And then, you know, when you go client side, you know, there's all sorts of different paths you can take. But, you know, five years at MasterCard was a brilliant grounding for me in kind of commercial marketing. Um, and then when the opportunity came to, to join Royal Mail to head up the brand as they were going into an IPO, um, that felt like too good an opportunity to miss. Uh, and then I just progressed through the ranks at Royal Mail. Let's talk about your time with MasterCard a little bit before we go on to the Royal Mail, because after about 10 years working with agencies, um, McCann and another agency, an independent 50-man agency as well, after about 10 years, you took the role with MasterCard. What factors led to that decision? And what was that experience like now working on the demand side? Well, I mean, it was completely different from working in, you know, Herbrand Street in London in, in, in McCann Erickson. Um, it was like working in a library to begin with. Um, I mean, it, <laughs> Quiet. It was, it, yeah, there were no young people um, and loud music and, uh, and, and laughter. That, that kind of, it was like working in a, in a very old fashioned bank. Yeah. Um, so that was, it was a bit of a culture shock, but, but it was a hell of a brief that I, that I joined for. Um, so, so I was recruited into 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 mastercard with a very specific role in mind which was they just bought a debit franchise called switch 
um, if people are old enough to remember that. And they were rebrand. They needed someone to rebrand it to um, their European debit brand, which is called Maestro. Mm. So I, I joined to to do that job. Um, now you know, Switch was on maybe 20, 30 million bank cards. It was quite a big deal to go in and and change change that brand and build it into um, a, a recognised brand, so people knew that they could use that card you know, in shops when they were buying stuff. Mm. Um, so the motivation really was, you know, here's a great big hairy challenge. Can, can you do it for us? Um, so, so, so that's what I did. But obviously the culture, you know, was very different. There's a lot more uh, kind of um, conservatism when you go in-house. Um, agencies are, tend to be quite edgy um, in, in general, um, and, and that's not the culture you get in-house. It mm. tends to be a little bit more risk-averse, especially in a regulated financial services business sure where you know you you have to kind of manage your reputation quite carefully so you know it, it was it was a great opportunity and then you know once once i once i got into mastercard after about a year 18 months i moved over onto the credit side of the business and uh, and started uh, working on the priceless advertising campaign and mm. the sponsorship assets and leading that in the uk and, and ireland and also a couple of countries in northern europe uh, and that was that was fabulous. It was a great platform to work off, and activating sponsorships and negotiating them was, you know, something I'd never done before. And that was that was a terrific learning. Um, and then contactless payments came along, mm. um, and and I in two thousand eight I launched that in the UK, and you know it, it took a while for it to take off, but you know now now it's history, right? I mean everyone taps and goes. So I was really you know that's one of the I suppose one of the probably most profound things I've done in my career was actually kind of getting that off the ground um, and actually having the first contactless payment card uh, at the first merchant in the whole of England. Amazing. Um, you know, setting that up and executing it was a, a brilliant thing to do. And then you say at MasterCard, that's where you learned your commercial smarts. What do you mean by that? So, you know, when, you, when you're a, at an agency, it, it's very much um, you're at the end of a, a process which is, you know, here's a communications brief. I need you to go away and achieve this, you know, uh, perception change or behavior change or generate this demand. And and what I learned at MasterCard was the bit that happens before that, which is really the, the commercial thinking, which is how are we making money and um, how can we make more? What's the sources of revenue? What are the products that we've got? What are the propositions? How do we pull all that together? So it was really the kind of marketing strategy end of, uh, of the spectrum and it's there really, I, you know, I was taken under the wing um, of, you know, the other senior marketers in, in Europe and globally and, you know, really learned how to understand the P&L, mm. really learned to identify where there were value pools and then, you know, use the intuitive knowledge that I built up over years in ad agencies to kind of go, right, well, this is how we can do advertising to help unlock um, this value for this business. Mm. Um, so, you know, that, that's where I really kind of learned that that side of uh, things. It was beyond execution and, and tactic and much more into strategy. Let's talk a little bit about Royal Mail. You joined the company in early 2013. Seems like a little unusual move from financial services to a traditional logistics company. What first attracted you to the company? You know, it, when I got approached by their in-house recruitment team, um, you know, it was just such a kind of felt like an honor to be honest with you. I mm. mean, you know, this was a last public service to be privatized. I, I know that's, you know, quite contentious, um, but it is the most popular stock in the UK. More, more people have shares in Royal Mail than any other 
business really? in the UK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. It's a okay. huge retail stock. It's huge, hmm. hugely um, loved um, as an institution. And, you know, the opportunity to, to be involved with that transformation from being a public, you know, a very slow um, public service, um, very inefficient, but vital to most businesses in the UK and, and connecting most people still in the UK, whether that's sending parcels or, or receiving them or, um, or, or letters, um, seemed like, you know, a brilliant opportunity to kind of go in and, and see if I could help, you know, protect and grow that business. Um, so it felt like it was a good thing. And, and to be honest with you, I wanted to get away from working for American companies uh, as well. <laughs> I wanted to have a different working culture. Um, and you don't get much more British than raw mail, if I'm honest with you. Um, <laughs> right. uh, and and that's very charming in its own way. Um, mm. So, you know, I, I, I wanted to have, you know, a, a different experience. And I suppose lastly, MasterCard was a very low headcount organization. There was only sort of a handful of us in the UK that ran all the marketing. And I really felt for my career, I needed to get much broader and deeper leadership experience. And the opportunity at, at Royal Mail was to, to lead, you know, a really quite significant team. Uh, and, you know, I, I felt that it was, you know, the right time in my career to kind of, you know, learn those kind of soft people management skills um, and, and, and you know, really sort of hone myself as a leader. So that, that those were the motivations, really. Hmm. Looking at Royal Mail now, you would never think that only a few years ago it was a traditionally slow-moving bureaucratic organization it seems as though it's the kind of organization that has moved with the times it's very modern it's got all the usual kind of bells and whistles that you would expect to see from a modern uh, British organization that wasn't what it looked like when you joined the company 2013 what what were the challenges the business was going through at the time talk a little bit about what the Royal Mail looked like when you joined and how did you help transition or transform the company into what it is today yeah so i mean it was you know there was an awful lot that needed to happen so so when i joined the business it, it just had a series of very damaging strikes um uh, and um so trust um amongst customers was very low uh, it was also fully regulated which uh, and what that means is that it couldn't set its prices the regulator set its prices it couldn't change its products without doing i think it was a three-month consultation so it couldn't change its features or products. Um, and it was also loss-making. I mean, heavily loss-making. Uh, and I think there were questions actually over whether or not it was a going concern at times. And this was an attractive opportunity to you because... Oh, it's pregnant with opportunity, Nathan. Pregnant <laughs> with opportunity. There you go. Uh, uh, I, I didn't, and, and in fairness, you know, I didn't do enough due diligence. And, you know, perhaps if I had, I, I would have stayed away from it. I don't know. But, um, you know, hindsight's, <laughs> hindsight's a funny old thing. But, but you know, it was, it was a rare challenge when I got in there. Um, the, the other thing about the business was at the time, there was very, very little technology um, deployed. I mean, I mean there, it wasn't Greenfield. It was, a, you know, there was technology there, but it really wasn't modern technology. So, you know, the network was effectively blind and dumb. Uh, you know, nobody knew what was in it or where it was. Uh, and, and people would turn up, you know, at mail centers with sacks of mail with handwritten labels on saying there's 500 items of mail in this bag, you know, from this customer. Mm. And, and, and that customer would be billed that amount, whether there was 300 or 600 pieces in there, it wouldn't matter. Mm. Um, so so over, the, over, over the decade that I was there, you know, the huge, huge amount of work was done to effectively digitize the pipeline. So, you know, there's barcodes now on, on every letter, pretty much every letter that goes through the network. 
there are you know, barcodes and uh, and very specific labels on on all parcels that go through it. And, and effectively, what what that has allowed uh, is for much better operational management of the network because we know what's going in, what's going out, and we know where it is. So we can you can launch a tracking um, service. You can you can do all sorts of different things for customers. But all of that had to be put in place. Um, now I was part of that journey. I wasn't responsible for it. But sitting on the commercial leadership team for seven years of the, the decade that I was in the business, you know, where all those decisions were made. Um, and, and, you know, it was absolutely enormous, um, mm. the changes, and especially when, when we deregulated and, you know, we stopped having a regulator telling us what we could do with our products and what we could charge for them. Mm. Um, there were no structures in place for the business to work out what its pricing strategy was um, uh, or how to make decisions about that without, you know, ending up in you know, litigation over competition law breaches. So I, I was actually quite heavily involved in setting up um, some of the processes around pricing. I, I briefly ran it actually for, for a while um, to, uh, when we first deregulated to try and put all those structures in place to build it into a much more commercial entity. Mm. You know, when, when you're a monopoly, you know, people have to buy your products. But when you've deregulated and um, uh, and you have, lots of competition in the marketplace you know you have to be much more commercial mm. um so you know i was one of many recruits that came in at the time to to kind of put those that those kind of commercial practices and processes in place um to take the business forward so when you came up with your plan to commercialize the business and you took that plan to the leadership team or the powers that be with the huge bill your huge bill in hand and the operational <laughs> challenges that would go along with that were you welcome with open arms and smiles and blank checks or was it a bit more complex than that? <laughs> no, no. The business has always been quite capital constrained and, and, and it's a relatively low margin business. It's a, in the UK, it's a £7 billion turnover business, but it, it doesn't really make much profit. So, so that means there's about £7 billion worth of costs. Um, <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know, and most of those are people costs. Most of those are postman, postman salaries. Um, not all, wow. about 70% of it is the cost in the final mile of delivery. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. Um, and so they're largely fixed costs. So that makes it a very difficult, you know, as in most fixed cost businesses, what tends to happen in those industries, what tends to happen is you have to <laughs> you have to fill it up with volume. So price prices tend to be quite low because you're just, you just want to keep the thing full. You haven't got very, mm. you can't reduce your cost base that easily. Mm. Um, so anyway, when, when, yeah, I mean, Everything was done in steps, I would say. There was no massive investment case for the whole lot. There was, you know, but but there was, you know, over uh, over the decade, I mean, at least a billion pounds, I would have thought, spent on technology and upgrades, whether that was in the operation or whether that was, you know, across a digital estate um, or the, just the core IT infrastructure of the business. Mm. And, you know, but but it had to be done you know, we yeah, we had normal planning cycles of one year, three year and five year. And, and it was kind of worked through in that way. But for the bits that I specifically ran, I mean, marketing, marketing budget was always a challenge to get hold of um, and to secure. Uh, and there were you know, a huge amount of hurdles around that, which you know, we, can, we can go into um, uh, as well. Um, digital was easier to get money for, but it was still very difficult. And it wasn't that the business didn't want to have a you know website on a platform that was in service, or they they and they did want to have you know a much more efficient and agile operating model. Um, it's just the business was never really it didn't really understand customers that well. Um, part of the problem with being a monopoly is you don't have to, 
Um, so, 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 it, you know, so there was constant focus um, from me and my colleagues on the commercial side about trying to make it a much more customer focused business and get the other executives to kind of walk in the feet of customers and, and, and understand the pain points and the difficulty they had of doing business with us, which is why these investments were incredibly important to make um, and improving customer journeys and, and experiences across touch points. Um, you know, and, and because, you know, I ran all the research um, for the business alongside the marketing and, and latterly all the digital, you know, I was quite heavily involved in in those kind of conversations and, and helping to influence and change uh, opinions so we could get the investment away. So one of the benefits or maybe drawbacks of marketing is that you get to touch every part of the business. Um, you're probably one of the only functions, if not the only function that gets to touch pretty much every every part of the business and understands both internally and externally sort of what customers and stakeholders are thinking about or expect. What sort of challenges did you face when communicating this new vision of this new transformation, both internally and externally to, to stakeholders? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think yeah, marketing functions tend to be the, the only function that kind of looks outward um, and also the, but coupled with that, um, that, that understands um, engagement and technology. Obviously, sales teams look outwards uh, as well, but they don't really have the kind of um, experience or, or need to really understand technology and, and, and kind of building uh, the kind of marketing capabilities that you need to have. So, yeah, no, it was a challenge. And, and, but, you know, we live in, you know, a very, very data centric world. And so the, the way through it was just making sure that we had the right data points um, and, and also to a degree the right benchmarks from, from very hungry competitors that were eating away at our customer base to be able to kind of say, look, this is, this is where we need to go. I mean, I think one of the, one of the things about, you know, working in a, a, you know, a great, you know, an, an enormous company like Raw Mail is that, you know, you're never going to be able to change quickly. So this is not going to be a sprint. This is absolutely going to be a marathon. Um, so you have to you, you have to have that mindset, but what you can do is build up very very strong arguments through your kind of longitudinal data sets that go back a number of years that say look you know we have to do these things because it, this is consistent customer behaviour and we're missing out on opportunities. Um, so you know we it, it wasn't um, that the business didn't want to change; it's just it needed um, a lot of proof and evidence and persuasion that it was placing its bets in the right places, if that makes sense. Most people wouldn't know that there's a huge B2B side of the business that contributes <laughs> over 80% of its revenues. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah, you're right. Most people, when they think of Royal Mail, think of the postman, they think of Christmas cards and birthday cards. What they don't really think about is the sort of, um, you know, 13 billion letters that we deliver every year. Um, might be a bit less than that now that we've had the pandemic, but it'll still be over 10 billion, I would have thought. I mean, that's a lot of letters. And a, a lot of those are, mm. you know, bills and statements mm. um, uh, and receipts and, 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 and the like. But nevertheless, you know, it's still a very large part of commercial life, uh, you know, paper and paper-based communications. Um, so that that's quite a big part of the business, um, just under half the size of the business, I think. Uh, and obviously parcels, you know, e-commerce, um, which is a big pivot that, that I've been part of within Raw Mail, has grown from being, you know, a, a fraction, a fraction of the volume and the revenue to over half the revenue in the UK now. And I think globally, because Raw Mail has got um, a very large um, European subsidiary called GLS, 
um, which actually you know, runs in about 40 different countries in Europe and in North America and Canada now. Um, I think over half the revenue in the business is parcels. And I think about 40% of it is international. So a lot of people don't realize that. And, and that's nearly all B2B uh, at a global level. So it's a huge business to business operation. Hmm. And, you know, every, you know, any business that works in retail, potentially manufacturing, um, will, will, will have some form of commercial relationship with raw mail for e-commerce and goods fulfillment parcel delivery. And certainly um, amongst um, smaller enterprises you know, in the SME space, it's an absolutely vital service. It's easy to access, cheap to use, very convenient and very reliable parcel delivery service, which allows you know marketplace sellers to thrive for businesses to you know distance sell, um, uh, you know, in, in a way that um, the other carriers you know they, they haven't got the capacity for um, to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, it's it's a pretty vital business, but it's a, but it is a huge business, an international business. No one knows that, and it's a massive business to business enterprise. Hmm. You say that when you're a monopoly, you don't really have to think about the competition much, but uh, that's changed in recent years. When people are considering the competition now, UPS, DHL, etc., how does Royal Mail stand out and differentiate from the competition? Well, so the interesting thing about Royal Mail is it's never going to be the cheapest. Um, and it can't be. The cost base is too high. We have a you know fully unionized workforce who are and, and the union are you know absolutely um, you know do a brilliant job for their members to negotiate, uh, retain terms, and get pay increases. So we've got a very high cost base. That means that you know you can't really trade off price. Now, for your largest customers, obviously you will you will you know you want to get the volume, so you 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 will run um, at, at a lower price point. Um, but in general, we are more expensive than than most of the competitors, and so that means you have to have better service. And it's pretty simple. Mm. Um, you know, we, we don't have a problem with the brand. Everyone's heard of Raw Mail. I think eighty percent of people in market will consider Raw Mail. It hasn't really got a problem there at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but it comes down to how reliable the service is and in some specific segments there there will be features and attributes that are absolutely vital um, for those businesses to survive so especially you get that with marketplace sellers a lot around uh, having proof of delivery is really important so that if people phone up and say well you know i haven't this thing hasn't arrived and they can turn around and say well actually it has arrived because mm. there was a scan that royal mail did or there's a picture of it in your doorstep or whatever sure. so 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 things like that are, are really 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 critical to some to, to some segments the vital piece around competition is making sure that you've got really really good quality of service so that, that that's the vital bit certainly for retail mm. which is the most um competitive um sort of market sector um that royal mail operates in because you know, if you mess up a delivery for a uh, for a customer, you know they could lose their customer, and, and you can pretty much draw a straight line um, in in retail between a poor delivery and um, a lack of the loss um, of a customer. Yeah, the loss of a customer, right? They just won't sure. purchase with you again. Mm. So, so that quality of service is vital, which is where you know having a very dedicated workforce um, that is you know very recognisable, uh, ninety thousand feet on the street. Every you know six days a week, um, you know a huge huge fleet everywhere, you know, and that 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 starts to pay dividends against some of the other competitors that are in the market with uh, you know a, a kind of gig economy workforce 
um, where you have a different person coming uh, each day and you never quite know the quality that you're going to get. Um, and some customers will pay a trade-off. You know, they'll go for much cheaper but worse quality and they've worked out that that's fine for them. Um, but you know, the, the vast majority of our customers will pay you know, a, a little bit more, not a huge amount, but a little bit more um, because you know, they know they will get you know, consistent quality and reliability. You, you also say one of the biggest jobs that you had at the company was changing the website from one that had over a thousand pages mm. to one that had significantly less than that, about 500 pages. Mm. You also introduced a new operating model to the business as well. What did that involve and what impact did it have on the business? Yeah, so so a couple of years ago, I was um, we, we had quite a big restructure and I was promoted into a role where um, well, I took on digital alongside marketing and I had to merge the two functions together. Not, not, not an uncommon practice in large organizations um, over the last couple of years. But kind of key to doing all of that was that we, we, we absolutely need to transform quite large pieces of the digital estate, the customer estate, uh, to get those right. And, and, and one of which was, was rawmail.com, um, which was, you know, it's one of the largest websites in the UK by visit, on visitor numbers. I think it's, it's over a million visitors a day, over a billion pages consumed a year. Mm and a huge amount of revenue written through it. Uh, but, you know, it was on a platform that was out of service, uh, a platform that didn't work on mobile, and, you know, the, the whole operating model, the whole setup, you know, was configured to sort of 19, well, 2008 uh, in terms of the, the, the way it worked and how we worked with our partners. And what we really needed to do was improve the customer experience and get the actual platform safe um, so that it, it was in support. Um, and critically, you know, look at the operating model, you know, which was set up as, you know, there's, a, there, there's something that needs to be changed. We'll go and brief the company that supports us on technology. And, you know, three weeks later, they will execute it hmm. um, to a much more agile model with developers in-house where we could in real time, as you'd expect on, you know, sounds a bit odd talking like this, but because it's how most businesses run. Um, but, you know, being able to do 90% of the stuff yourself in real time. Um, so it, th- that was quite a big transformation to do that. And at the same time, you know, f- for various other reasons, you know, we had GDPR coming down the line and all the new cookie consent rules. Mm. Um, uh, the e-commerce platform we were running on, the shop we were running on, uh, was that, that that platform was being terminated by oracle who we use so we had to move all of that as well so it ended up being an absolute monster uh, of a project over about 18 months Mm. but particularly because of the way that we decided to run it we decided we would run it as an agile project rather than a kind of more classic kind of waterfall based um project sure um and that was that was tough for the organization to buy into because uh, they'd never run an agile project anywhere near the scale um, that we were running it at. And obviously, you know, the last time we replatformed the website, which was just before I joined, uh, it all went wrong. And uh, actually, the website didn't work for about three months uh, over a Christmas period. Um, so nobody could oh buy. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah over Christmas. Just, yeah. It was so, disaster. So that was fresh in their mind. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was a long then, time ago. And then here you come. Yeah, here I come to you. Well, we well we kind of got to do this, and, and I'm going to do it in a way that is really scary. Um, so, but but you know, I mean, we've got a very strong technology team. They absolutely wanted to do this as an agile project. They wanted that to become a a really good use case for them within the business. So they they were up for it. 
um, and and we're going to uh, be prepared to kind of invest in uh, people and you know um, commitment to kind of achieve it that way. Um, I had a very good uh, finance director at the time who completely got it. She completely got um, that it was going to be much more cost efficient to run this as an agile project than than a, a, a waterfall based one, which would involve you know half a million pounds worth for scoping up front, setting requirements, and mm. you know, and we would know we would never have completed it in in the time frame that we needed to complete it in. It would have cost us twice as much. Mm. So you know, um, but that but that involved you know a huge amount of cultural an operational change within the business to a get the business cases approved but also b do the development and then run the website you know with a, an in-house dev team um and all the kind of analytics and uh, and responsiveness that, that that you need to have and, and and the empowerment that you need to give teams and managers to just go away and do stuff mm. rather than going through various boards and bureaucratic sign-off processes um so that was you know it was a terrific thing to to oversee i'd be lying if i told you it was easy um it was it was excruciatingly difficult at times to get it away um and you know you you kind of you know every bear trap we fell down but you get back up afterwards and you go right well we're not going to do that again um and actually i've learned a huge amount now about how we can make this work when we go live um so that that was that was very helpful so talking about ambitious projects, if that wasn't enough, you also digitized the company around social media. So you created a social social and content unit, um, and that was much more about sort of culture and ways of working, but you transformed the way that everyone in the company used social media. What problem were you trying to fix? So like most new sort of marketing technologies when they spring up, you get little advocates in different parts of the business uh, who, who start doing things. And they could be in marketing, they could be in sales, they could be in customer service, they could be anywhere. And and over over time, you, you find that you've got this incredibly disparate um, uh, kind of approach of going to market on these channels. And you've got these kind of false delineations happening between service and PR and HR recruitment and marketing. Um, so so one of the big tasks when I, when I took over, over group marketing alongside doing the web transformation was to create a center of excellence in the center of the organization that could really leverage the social media channels, you know, uh, as much as humanly possible. Um, Just because it's a kind of owned channel that we really should be able to use effectively. So we partnered initially with, um, with the PR team. um, uh, And then um, with the, there was a number of smaller marketing units um, across the business. Um, And we, created a core team of community managers and content um, creators to um, you know build out a proper um, social media strategy and proper kind of channel strategies for you know the key the key channels that we were going to be using like Twitter Facebook Instagram LinkedIn uh, etc mm. um, and you know it, it I'd be lying if I said it was easy it, it, again it was one of those things that was it wasn't as difficult as the as the kind of web transformation this was the 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 challenge on this was much more um to to do with you know the commercial value of social media and actually you know because you can spend quite a lot of time um and effort on you know uh, on these channels and not really have much to talk about at the end of the day (laughs) Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, it was quite important for me, I'm quite a commercial marketeer is that, that, that we, you know, we, we were producing, you know, revenue, um, as well as kind of reputation and brand impacts. 
uh, or, or we were helping to lower costs um, in other parts of the business, uh, which is why we took on um, uh, HR standard HR recruitment as well. All of that activity in the um, in the kind of LinkedIn channel uh, gets run through the central social media team now, which it just made a lot of sense. But uh, the interesting thing about the implementation though um, was that you know it wasn't about having you know a small team in the middle. Um, yeah, that didn't make it that's you know as successful as it could have been. I mean, obviously that was massively important to have those experts. Um, we did a huge amount of training um, across the business, but again, that didn't really light the fire. What what really lit the fire was was changing the governance around how the team operated. So in a very regulated business, which is very risk averse, there's lots and lots of controls in place to make sure that no one does anything to damage the, the company. And what I realized quite early on with social media is that, you know, if the head of social has to come to me every time he wants to put a a reactive post out to get approval, Mm. um, we're not going to work very well in this channel. Um, And, uh, and also, you know, and, you know, and and if every press release gets written and then they turn around and say, well, could you amplify this for us, please? Um, You know, can you push it out on Twitter? Um, That's not, you know, that's pretty turgid content. (laughs) There's no infographics. Yeah. There's no film. Sure. There's nothing. No so, so I, I kind of, you know, I, it kind of, click, you know, I clocked quite quickly that what I really need to do is just empower people to get on with stuff and trust that they would be responsible. And if there was something that was too contentious, they would come and talk to me or one of my colleagues on the leadership team and say, look, you know, we think you put this out. What do you think? Um, but just to get on with it. Hmm. Um, and, and that's what they did. So, and, and by getting on with it, what happened was that, you know, the content plan was developed. Um, and it was very full and they started to get tons and tons of traction on the channels because they were being reactive. They had humor, uh, had real personality in what they were doing. And, you know, the, and the content was engaging and strong. And, and, you know, I think we got up to about a million engagements a month and we didn't spend, I mean, we spent like, like next to nothing on media. Mm. This was nearly all organic. Um, but we've got such a strong brand that it was, you know, it was very easy to, you know, with the right content to kind of build a huge franchise um, in in those channels, um, and as we as we did more content, it got more engagement, and you know, uh, and people you know really really started to kind of follow us and and uh, and engage what we did. You know, more and more people around the business started taking it more seriously, uh, and and we started executing far more kind of you know uh, campaigns through that channel and starting to turn that into into revenue onto the bottom line. But but what really pulled all that together was was the 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 change in governance and the empowering the teams to just get on with it and work in a truly agile but responsible way. That was that was the most powerful insight. Mm. Um, you can't do that for every every medium, I'll be honest with you. You, you couldn't do that with a big TV production. You couldn't just let people get off and do stuff, you, you know, that you know, because the the yeah. the, 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 the scale of what you're well, yeah, but the scale of what you're doing, you know, you're doing an ad which might, you know, 25 million people might see eight times. You know, that's very different from a little social film. Sure. Um, do you know what I mean? So, so, but, but in that particular way to get that channel working brilliantly um, was was to kind of um, just excite and engage people and give them some freedom. And, and where we got to at the end was that you know people stopped. You know, it's certainly with 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 the PR team, they stopped kind of going. Here's the press release. Can you amplify it? To we've got this brilliant idea. What do you think we can do with it? Um, and you know that could have been through social. It could have been through. Um, you know, digital, other digital channels. It could have been um, through just a standard press release, and that was, you know, to see that come together 
um, over about an 18 month period. And that transformation in, in kind of culture and, and the way the working practice changed was, was really phenomenal. I, re- I, I was so, so proud of that. Really pleased with that. Really fascinating. I, ben, I could speak to you about this all day. I think what you've done in your career is absolutely fascinating. Final question though, before we get into our speed round, your background is from media and advertising, and then you digitally transform one of Britain's biggest and sort of most well-loved institutions. What transformation did you have to go on personally in order to acquire those skills and those muscles to have been able to have done what you have done in your career? I don't think many people would have been as confident or as competent in making that personal transformation. So I think I mean, that's a great question and not one that I've been asked before, actually. I was very lucky in my career that I, I've worked for some brilliant people and I've worked with some brilliant people. And I think when you're kind of in that company, stuff kind of rubs off on you a bit. Mm. Um, but I guess the bits that I really developed were around leading through others. At the beginning of my career, it was all about me. It was all about my personal achievements and the skills that I had. Uh, you know, craft skills about how to do things. But actually, the more ambitious the tasks and the challenge were, the more you realize you can't actually do it yourself. And what you really need to do is employ people around you who are truly brilliant at at doing the things that that they're going to do. And my job is to create an environment in which they can thrive and be absolutely amazing. And, you know, yeah, I I haven't got it right all the time, um, but that's probably the skill or at least the the thing that I know that I need to do for the team to be successful and therefore the company to be successful um, is to kind of create that environment. Mm. A friend of mine years ago as a creative director once described it as um, in a beehive, you can only make honey at a certain temperature. But the fascinating thing about that is that the temperature is regulated by the bees Mm. and the job of the queen bee is to help them set the right temperature. Mm. And then they just get on and do it themselves. Love that. And I think in many ways, marketing, de- marketing departments are kind of like that. And the role of the CMO is, is kind of like that. Yeah. It's, it's about creating that environment so that people can really thrive and really, you know, do brilliant work. Love that. I'm going to steal that for myself, Ben. Hope you you don't mind. I'll be using that on all my social media. Um, Let's get into our speed round now. These are the questions. I'm going to fire some questions at you. If you can fire some short, sharp responses back, that would be fantastic. Uh, Which CMO has the hardest job in marketing right now? Oh, God. Well, this is in the middle of a pandemic, right? Um. Well, I guess they all do. I guess they all do. I think they all do. I, t- I tell you what, though, I know it's meant to be quick, far right? But, you know, when, when I worked at MasterCard, which was, you know, a business with something like, oh, God, I don't know, profit margins are like 60, 70%, right? And growing like Billio. Mm. That, is a, that is a really difficult thing to maintain, right? Mm. That is, you know, people just think, oh, it must be so easy doing marketing there. Not really, because the expectations are enormous. Okay. Equally, you know, if you're in a turnaround situation where it's kind of life and death, that's really hard as well. Sure. Um, I suspect if I was going to say anyone, there's a new guy, there's a guy who's just gone in to take on pret manger as CMO. I think that's probably going to be a really challenging role for him. Why? Pret? Um, Everyone yeah, loves Pret. pret. Well, no, yeah, but no one's going to work anymore. Oh, well, okay. Well, you have that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that part. 
Yeah. Okay. Fair. I think I think, I think, I think that's really challenging because that's taking a brand um, that is all about service in store mm. uh, and converting it into a, a brand that is, um, you know, all about probably home delivery. Um, and I, I think that's going to be a real challenge. Mm. What what excites you most about your current role? Oh, actually, that's probably a bad question. See, as though you're in gar- gardening leave. <laughs> And you have been for the last, I don't know, year. Yeah, four months. Yeah. <laughs> if you could live or work anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Oh, you know, I, I, I've worked, I've worked all, all over the world, to be honest with you. And candidly, England is a brilliant place to work. I mean, mm. you've got the best creative agencies, the mm. best creative minds. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go anywhere else. It's a, it's a fabulous place to be. Next job with the uh, England Tourism Board, I think. Like, that's a great, great <laughs> advert. Um, last couple of questions now, and then I'll I'll let you go. Tell us some of your favourite books. What do you read for personal and professional development? Wow. Well, uh, currently I am reading um, uh, a whole ton of different books. Um, uh, I'm reading uh, Good Strategy and Bad Strategy um, by um, uh, Rumelt, which book. is a fabulous, fabulous book. Yeah. Um, uh, what else have I got on my bookshelf? I'm, I'm reading, I'm doing quite a lot of strategy stuff at the moment. There's a, there's a, a Harvard business re- review compendium of like the 10 sort of um, strategy articles that you just have to read. Hmm. Um, so I'm kind of, kind of plowing through that. And then the other one I've got just for fun is the age of surveillance capitalism by um, Shoshana um, Zuboff, which. Um, oh, that is a big book. It is a big book, and it's it's been sat on my shelf, and, and I've I've read the first page. I'm sure, but I'm I'm de- I'm determined to to kind of to kind of go through it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that's sitting there. It's winking at me. Better yeah, you than me. I, me. I gave up after like three pages. I'm sorry. I tried. <laughs> I tried. Maybe the audio book. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I might have to do that one. Um, what are you watching or streaming on Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or Disney Plus? That's good. Oh wow! Well, you know, we've been in lockdown, right? So I've I've, I've consumed most things. Um, <laughs> I really, but the last series that I really loved on Netflix was Travelers. I just thought that was fabulous. Um, yeah, it was good. Yeah, and I'm and I'm currently rewatching um, a, a series on Sky um, called Strike Back, which is um, about a fictional um, military unit, which okay. is um, great, great fun. Okay, added added to my list. Uh, and my final question, Ben, if you were to give advice to your younger self just leaving college or university, what advice would you give a young Ben Rhodes? I would say um, always be true to your word and, and never stop being inquisitive and curious. Mm. Um, and, and, and lastly, you know, put in the hard yards um that's really really important i think especially at the beginning of your career you you know the first 10 years really are the hardest um it's where you learn your craft it's where you learn your skill and if you put the hard yards in there um it, it's a great platform for later you know because your career is a, a marathon right it's not a sprint mm. you know you can be working for 30 40 maybe even 50 years so you know, getting those craft skills so you really understand the detail um, of how things work uh, in what you're doing um, uh, is is massively important. And I think once you've got that platform, then you can leap off that in, in all sorts of different directions. Mm. Great place to end. Ben, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. 
If you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of Client Side, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear as a guest on the show, please email chloe at fox.agency. The people that make the show possible are Chloe Murray, our booker slash researcher. David Clare is our head of content. Ben Fox is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Annie Barber. You've been listening to Client Side from Fox Agency. Join us next time on Client Side, brought to you by Fox Agency.